This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined by fellow Scott and I'm going to be honest with you, the king of podcasts, Graham Hunter, the host of the Big Interview. Graham, thanks for joining me. Callum, I'm going to start. Listen, I won't swear because I don't know your um, audience quite so well, is it? Did, you know, if I could say fit, did I fit recognise? When you built that up, I thought you were going to say someone else's name. I'm, I'm not sure I'm king of the podcast, so let, let, let's... We're going to have to work over the coming interview for a new a new way of branding. It's nice of you to say that, but I definitely didn't recognise myself. <laughs> in terms of the big interview, it's been it's been around for a few years now. It's very successful. Um, started with the likes of um, Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher. Just what was the idea behind it, and 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 how how has it grown over the, the years as well? Well, you use the term fellow squawks if you were proud of sharing a nationality, and if so, I'm going to extend the credit to two other Scots because it's really important for anybody who's listened to the big interview um, to realise that um, for whatever I do that's in it that's good or worthwhile, um, there's, there's a, an enormous amount of work goes into it in the background by my two producers, who are Neil White and Mark Gregg. And it was their idea, uh, Callum Bowley. I, I don't know where you took the idea to, to start this from, um, but when I don't know, five seasons ago, five, well, I think we're in the fifth season, I can't remember, but when they came to me and, and suggested that I had no idea what a podcast was, I, I was aware that such a thing existed, that people were increasingly talking about it, being a, a contrary, actually, I want to reach for another swear word, which I'll try and avoid, as long as I possibly can, being a, a really contrary bugger, um, I'd taken against it. I didn't like the word podcast. It, it, it grated on me. And before we came on air, I was ranting about another expression, wasn't I? That I thought. So I'm a real, you know, about the only part of my life where I'm a fascist. It's a word fascist. And, and I'm not saying that my beliefs are justified. So, number one, I didn't know what a podcast was, Cal. Number two, I didn't like the word and I was grumpy about it. I was a bit to Meldra about it. <laughs> and the way, they, the way they suckered me into it was uh, they said, do you remember, which is increasing a good tap to it, do you remember when? So back in the day in my house, when I was growing up, um, our folks would take in Sunday Post, which I thought was, to be honest with you, just a waste of space, um, plus the Observer and the Sunday Times. And obviously I'm talking in the 70s here, when I began to read um, Sunday papers from, from cover to cover. And... One of the great joys then, in, a, in an era, you know, I'm talking when there were only three television channels in, in, in the UK and, and dramatically fewer radio stations. One of the great joys was settling down once I'd fought for my share of whatever, whichever paper had the best sports interview, was seeing somebody, I suppose back in the day, I can't remember who did all the long interviews, but some of the long interviews should have been by... Um, Captain Whitehorn or by uh, Hugh McIlvanny, um, I mean, writers whose, now whose bylines from, you know, 74, 5, 6, 7, whose bylines I should remember, but I, I, I don't. And eventually, and I really like reading the, the ghosted stuff that McFarlane did, that Bruce Scott was a very good interviewer, um, the ex-jockey and horse racing presenter. And they said, we feel that we could do that in an audio version. We, we feel that we could have a depth of um, coverage, a depth of conversation, if we pick the person well. They felt that I had a good contacts book. And so when we began, Calum, I, I, without any question, I knew how to, what I wanted from an interview, a longer interview. And it wasn't just like when I was a print journalist. I, I wasn't going into it looking for headlines or 
somebody to say something that, yeah, bingo, great, we've got something hot there. I wanted a long conversation. I wanted depth. I wanted to find out about the person a little bit. And I wanted the listener to mm, join in an experience from which they'd emerged satisfied. And that's why it began. In terms of the beginning, I mentioned a few of those early guests in Carragher and Neville. What were they like to have on? Because they are big personalities. Um, it's funny looking back and... Um, First of all, um, Gary was struck me as extremely articulate. It was hard to pin down because originally he, he didn't understand the concept either. And I know that having featured in the first interview that I did in the big interview and having hit the top of the charts, and um, which it did, and it was at a time when there weren't nearly as many sports podcasts, and there weren't any. I don't. I wasn't aware of any long interview sports football podcasts. And I, I know um, through feedback that he thought, well, this is amazing. I must do one. And he has. And and I, I'd like to think that there was roots of uh, from my experience with him where he sat down. He, he was expecting it to be a five-minute chat. And I said to him, no, that's not what we, you know, it's not what we should It's not what I want. And we sat in a studio in Sky. And it's just in a sound studio using equipment rather like I can see you're using now people aren't all watching this but I can see that the high level of sound equipment you're using we sat down just in a booth where we knew it would be and quiet and I find them immensely um, thought provoking because I, I don't think he'd been interviewed on the subjects I talked to him about like that before so we talked a great deal about commentary and I found his articulacy really good because I know he's, he's football bright and I know that um, He's got a very strong, dynamic personality. Um, but what I liked was the degree to which he was he self-analysed what he wanted to say, how he'd said it, whether he should say that again. So even then, you know, a couple of years on from his debut, and I know that it's becoming vogue right now during the, the lockdown for, for Sky I put on, back to the beginning with Gary Neville they put on his first interview and there's been a lot of his, his first Monday night football there's been a lot of analysis about that I think that what struck me right from the start Callum is that it was you know I'm not certain that you know I necessarily share um, a tremendous amount of things except for you know how intensely we feel about football and, and football analysis and I remember when he began to came through, come through uh, with uh, Big Ed, who's now at the racing chamber, um, and I thought this is this is startlingly good, startlingly different, and uh, the range of issues that they want to talk about, the depth, and and remember that slot was, you know, it was one that Sky didn't want in the bidding war, in the bidding war for the new Premier League rights that began to erode Sky's ability to want to invest in Spanish football. So it was a mixed blessing. You know, what really clearly happened was they went, they were lumbered with the package of Monday night football, which they, they didn't value at that stage really highly. So the way that they reinvented what Monday night football could become, the depth of the feature content, the depth of the analysis, and then adding Cara's voice on separately, by which time, you know, on the, on the, on the day that, uh, on each of the days that uh, we recorded the, the Gary interview and the Jamie Carragher interview. It was a Monday when they were preparing for their, you know, their, their, and they put a they put a shift of preparation income. They really do. So um, Gary, I think at first was um, unaware about what he was in for, and then he engaged and was extremely good. And Cara was nervous. I I I don't think that he had any peg. I don't think he knew exactly quite what I was like. He was friendly enough to say yes, gave his time generously. I thought we talked about things that were, that were good and were interesting. We tried to put a microscope on Istanbul in 2005. And and I enjoyed it, but it definitely he's one of maybe two interviews where I, I've seen the guest start off a little bit perturbed, a little bit worried about what's this going to be like? And and with Michael Carrick was one where, where they both went into, irrespective of them both knowing me a little bit, 
they both were so hard to what journalists can be like. The first six or seven minutes, each of them slipped into automaton mode, whereby not defences are up, but like they're they're careful. And I can see in their eyes they're like, okay, where's this going? Are there any trip wires? And then each of them go, oh no, this is this is kosher, and relaxed. And in Kara's in in Michael Carrot's case, the the degree to which you relaxed, the the degree to which you enjoyed it, uh, Michael afterwards said, why don't you guys come to my box at Old Trafford tonight? I'm not playing, which chances are you get PSV. We went and watched the, the PSV nil-nil draw, if I remember correctly, um, with his mom and his dad and his brother and, and a close friend who worked at Leicester. And we spoke about an inordinate range of things, just chatting, not, not, not long out of the interview. And subsequently, Joe Tung, who represents Michael's you know, PR side, phoned to say, Michael doesn't talk like that. How did you? And another kind comment was Henry Winter, who said that in the beginning, the ghost Michael's autobiography, Henry said that he went back time and again to, to that interview to to look for codes and clues that helped him get the best. And and it's, it clearly succeeded. If you look at Michael's book, and Henry did a very, very, very good job indeed, I think. Um, and, I, and his book is terrifically affecting and moving in some places where Michael talks really brutally about the the degree of depression that um, that losing in Rome in 2009 uh, caused him, and and the degree to which he was dislocated from himself and from the world in the in the sub still by the subsequent 2010 World Cup. So. They're, they're, those interviews um, in the early days kind of stand out to me for, for a variety of reasons. One of the things, and I'll, I'll pay you the compliment because it's genuine in the sense that one of the things I've modelled with my own podcast based on listening to the big interview of the years is the ability to follow on a conversational path because you know what it's like yourself. There's, if you go in saying, I'm going to ask these 10 questions, it can become quite robotic. And that's something I like about your style, that if they mention a particular name, you're happy to go down that detour with them. And that's something I've tried to do as well. I think, I don't know, okay, so you and I, I don't need to try and convince you because you and I have a similar idea, but if, if, I let, if, we, if we discard the idea of a podcast, because the podcast is just a vehicle, you know, the podcast isn't what we do, then either you, you may want to call it access, a means where somebody famous um, who you've chosen will say interesting enough things to generate content that will generate listeners and subscriptions or advertising or subscription. Or, secondly, you may just call it exactly what you said, a, a, a fairly pared-down interview where, well, if I can cover these 10 subjects in 35 minutes, um, I hit my target. And what comes out could be, it's a lucky dip. But for good or bad, I think that what you've identified there is, is what I said right from the start. I, 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 the, <clears throat> there's so much content now, even though access to players and managers, even some ex-players, it has probably never been more difficult to achieve because the barriers um, no one paid to do something else. No, my agent says no. No, my press officer says no. Whatever it, or no, I don't have enough time. Or whatever it may be. Nonetheless, there's still a, an inordinate amount of content out there, and I and I think what you referred to there was our perception that if we made it a conversation, because before I even think about what we produced for the listeners, I only pick people that. Um, I, I respect. I don't have to have met them. In many of the cases, the interview guests I've met and, and they know me. Sometimes that isn't the case. And I want that guest to walk out of the interview going, I enjoyed that, or at least that was worthwhile. That's a, maybe a better way to say it. What we started to get back early was people saying to our guests, people who knew them, listening to the interviews and saying, I've never heard you speak like that. Well, you come across differently. One of them was David Moyes. David had a certain slightly falsely created reputation. And when we went up to San Sebastian to interview him, I came out 
because I knew David separately and I came out thinking, well, I've done okay there. I'm not sure that I really opened them up enough to, to, to show the real guy. But I think we've done okay and there was some laughs and it's relaxed and fine. And we went out on the town, drank all night and danced in the rain um, on the beach at San Sebastian to a live Earth, Wind and Fire gig. Him, me, Martin, Neil and Billy McKinley. So this interview game can take you some some unusual places, Callum. Just be prepared there. So to answer your question, um, I, I, you know, if if the if the guests are going to walk away, I'm feeling content about the time they've invested, and if, I, if I'm going to make a connection with them, which is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, I'm you know wasting my time. There's no point in pissing around doing what other people are doing. It's just no point. And I'm not really interested in just creating content or use some words and therefore when people speak yeah I like to go right I, I've heard what you said there I was interested in my first question you've answered me now I want to know more so it, this might sound poncy and it's not my intention to um, and really if anybody does think that like, you know GTF but like if 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 it's supposed to be a conversation, then you start off by asking a question that you want to know the answer to. And if they answer, you, you know, open sesame, we're off. It's, it's, a, it's a conversation between two people who've got a shared interest. And, and it seems that when you achieve that, listeners enjoy it. Absolutely. And one of the, the episodes that I love in particular, um, I love when players based in the UK go abroad to play football and one of my favourite episodes was with Steve McManaman because his storytelling was very good but also the, the respect that I have for him as a person just because he took the plunge to go abroad and he made a success of it as well. Yeah, it's funny when you say that because, um, you know, I suppose I may as well be frank. I was no point in doing this interview either but that was a hard one to get. Um, at first, I messaged him. He's like, "Hi, great, no problem." We've got on right since we met, which is a strange thing because, again, we're extremely different people. He he repeatedly tells me uh, that he's impressed with how I only I must only shop at jumble sales or charity shops, <laughs> which is which is not which is not a wholly unfair comment. But I got the exclusive story on my own on the back page of the paper. Um, when he when he sealed his freedom of contract, Bosman moved from Liverpool to Madrid. And he didn't know how I'd done it. He promised that story to his his best journalist mate, uh, David Maddock, and he had no idea because it was long, long, long before it got in England. And I just got lucky in that. A friend of Michael Michael Robinson was doing what's called here assessor in the deal. He was guiding the deal and. St. Steve, it's a good idea in Madrid, and St. Madrid, it's a great idea, Maca. And, you know, a friend of Michael's was involved, and we'd been long-time, long-time pals, and he just phoned me and said, look, write it. It's, it's kosher, it's definitely happening. In fact, it's practically done. Um, knock yourself out, so I did. Um, and that allowed a level of contact when Steve was in Spain that, Really, to be honest with you, he treated me like a total gent in that he could, and lots of people would have been like, I mean, Callum, I hear I've got again, I'm bumping into words, right? I won't swear. He, he could have been like, you, how did you, I, you know, you've done me a tip of bad, don't I? And instead, he was like, all right, mate, let's size each other up. And from that point to this, um, I found that we enjoy each other's company. Um, I like him a lot. And the thing that I'm getting around to answering your question was that on the day, um, I couldn't find him. And Neil White, my producer, will testify to the fact that we turned up at the hotel, he told us at the appointed hour, mm, no Steve. Um, we phoned, we, we went to the desk to, to phone up to his room. Now, like, there's no Steve that man here. And it's the day of a, Barca against somebody in the Champions League. I don't know who. I don't know. Maybe Chelsea. Chelsea. I might not. Um. 
I was like, what the fuck? I missed you, Steve. Not only are they, I'm not getting answers, they're not being seen. So I think, right, he's out here working for BT, who do I know at BT, and I knew a producer, so I phoned him up and he said, ah, yeah, I think you might find he's at this hotel now. I'm like, okay. So I turn up at, at, at the at a completely different hotel. We race across the city, the time going against us. And Neil's flown out for this to produce it, you know, which costs money. So we're like, okay, let's see what's the story. And uh, we get to the hotel, we phone up Steve's room, he's like, all right, here. And I'm like, yeah, Steve, you know, we were, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, never guess what happened. And I go on in and tell me. I don't know if this came out in the podcast or not, but he'd been, he'd been, it'd been bad weather. So his flight had been delayed, um, I think, out from somewhere like Stansted. And the, I must have been Liverpool, but why could it be Liverpool? Because it's way before the 3 0. Maybe it wasn't. Anyway, Robbie Fowler was coming out too. And his plane had been not delayed so that by chance they arrived in the same airport at exactly the right time, having been due to miss each other by two and a half hours. And as I would in the situation, my mate was I'd be like, they were like, right, big night out. Big night out. Starting now? Starting now. So Maka had changed his hotels, going out on the on the lash with Robbie. It had been a you know, it had been a big night out, it's fair to say. And they were about to go off for a boozy lunch too, or a, a nice lunch, I would say it. Um because there was a, a crowd of eight of mine on them, I'm sure Steve and Robbie weren't drinking at lunchtime, but um he's like, right, after lunch, if you hang on here, so we hung on on. We knew the time was short. Um, between the end of the interview and, and uh, you know, the responsible time for broadcasters to get to it. Uh, so the interview was good, but it was, uh, it was, it was quite, you know, it was quite stress-inducing to actually get it once it was agreed. And I interviewed him last week or the week before um, at length about, um, what subject? About his triumphs in 2000 against Valencia and then at Hamden against Bayer Leverkusen. And in that, although that was by Zoom, in that circumstance, boy, he gave an absolutely wonderful, interesting, uplifting interview. I came off that one thinking, possibly we've just done a better one than we did for our podcast. And secondly, that was a lot less stressful. <laughs> so if you enjoyed it, I'm really, really pleased. Because I think like you, one, He's an extremely articulate, uh, bright, sort of quick man. And two, yeah, what he ach- what he achieved by going, right, I'm going up, bro. And listen, he 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 told in in some detail in either one of these two interviews that, you know, he just lost one of his parents, and um, it it was a hard thing to do to leave home at a point when, you know, the remaining parent was sore and. You know, he, he, he was setting off to a country where he didn't have the language and you know, it was definitely going to be a very political club. So not only was he adventurous and, and, and quite brave in sporting terms, he knocked sixes out of the park. You know, he remains an extremely popular, well-liked figure at Real Madrid. And to be, you know, a double Champions League winner and man of the match in one of them was at that stage unprecedented for a Brit. Gareth Bale's gone on to emulate and, and go ahead of him. Um, but particularly the way in which they, they smashed Valencia that day in Paris, a game I was at, meant that, yeah, like you, my, my, my respect for him is extremely high. I need one handful of other trophies to do it now. In terms of the podcast there, we've talked about some of those guests. You've had so many incredible guests and a real variety as well. In terms of the future, um, are there any guests in particular who are, in a sense, dream guests for you that you, you're desperate to get and maybe you've not had on yet? I I would say yeah that there's 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 an easy couple. Um, so for example, until recently, until very recently, I thought the best interview I'd ever been involved in was in a sort of loft of a big, um, quite sort of arty crafty hotel in Copenhagen and it was one 
dark winter's afternoon with Peter Schmeichel. And it was, he told me such remarkable things, said such remarkable things um, in, in, a, in a really relaxed surrounding. We were filming for UEFA. And at that stage, not all, Cam, not all the interview got used. A lot of it ended up cutting on the floor. And I'd really like to revisit that because um, he genuinely told me things that um, still to this day, make me scratch my head and I, and I want a wider audience to listen to. And um, he's writing a book, as I understand it, and he's writing his autobiography. So that what will happen is, frustratingly, now's not the time for him to speak because the book must contain all the anecdotes. When it does come out, there'll be a queue, you know, as long as Sophie Hall speak for those interviews. So I'm going to have to think probably of, of waiting until all that dies down, and then St. Peter, now let, let's, if you don't mind, let's, I think we stop left. So he's one, another easy one, quick one to go to is that twice now, I've interviewed Thierry Henry, and he's the one last week who superseded that Michael interview as, in my opinion, the pound for pound, the most immense interview I've ever participated in. It was, he's, He's stunning in his concepts, in his articulacy, in his intensity. And also because throughout his playing career, he was, he was quite a private guy. He, he would intermittently give interviews, big interviews to France football or Lequipe, but not that often. And we didn't know each other particularly well before he came to Barcelona. Equally, um, until we persuaded him, and it took a little bit of time to persuade him to to join Take the Ball, Pass the Ball film. Um, and in that, in that, on that day in the Landmark Hotel in London, that was a startling experience because we, we, we probably needed four or five minutes of um, material from him, which we thought might take, you know, maybe you do 25, 30 minutes to make sure you get the right type of information that you want to go in the film. And also we're, we're used to superstars, and he is a superstar, to have limited time. And he came in, again, it was approaching Christmas. It was a beautiful hotel, a Christmas tree in the lobby that, that breached out up through the floors. Um, and there was very good translucent window space and light in the middle of this really quite elegant hotel. And we were, we, we were given free and gratis by Landmark, a, a kind of like Hercule Poirot drawing room full of um, oak and mahogany and, and sofas, all this kind of stuff. It's very old fashioned and very plush. And we set up in there, we made it look nice and he came in and he sat down and once we started talking, he didn't really stop for an hour. And then Duncan, the director of the film said, right now we've got a little blackboard where I want you to do that you see it in the film where he moves pieces on the on the blackboard around to to explain Barcelona's schematics of how they moved. And at the end of it, at the end of the interview, we were all like, we've got we've got a we've got an hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes of Thierry This is incredible. And he, he was knocking off stuff that you you, you wouldn't see um, academics in the Open University being a lot of companies. And we were like, we, we wanted to say thank you. We also wanted to get him out of there so that he didn't go away. We, we imagined he might go away and think, God, what have I done? That, that's an hour and 20 when I could have been doing X or Y. And we were like, okay, yeah, thanks, money. And we went, okay, yeah, that's right. And he went, can I just say another thing? And I was like, baby, you can say all you like. If you're happy, if you're happy, you keep going, man. So that was an extraordinary experience. And afterwards, I met him at Sky, just on the um, Sky Sports News floor, just by chance. We didn't chat for half an hour about rugby. And so when I did this interview last week with him, um, like I won't bore you by going on about it when you can't hear it, but it, it was just, you know, I came off it, it was like a gym session, one you have to be sharp, you have to be agile in your questions, the length of them, or, or 
whether you do or don't have time to follow up an answer, like you pointed out, this was much more get through them, get through them, because I've been given a set of about 20 questions. It's supposed to be a half an hour, it was an hour and five minutes. He really enjoyed himself. So he'd be my answer number two, in that um, I'd, I'd truly like him to come and do that on the beginning. He allowed us to, to use the full audio of the of what we recorded for Take the Ball, Pass the Ball as, a, as one of our um, big interview subjects, which was, which was terrific, but he'd be number two. And the third would be somewhere between, I've always liked the way that Teddy Sheringham speaks. One, he's a geezer, which <laughs> I like. And two, um, I, I still believe he's a little bit underestimated as a footballer. I still think that we saw him doing things that were so technically clever that he, positionally he was brilliant that he was he could he could be a brilliant nine if he wanted to or he could be an exceptional um player in of teammates around him i think just about everybody who played with him played better his career was epically long um when he won the the treble he, he put all three medals around his neck and he drove around north london in his open top Mercedes or Rolls Royce just sent to the Spurs fans. Hey, hey, there you go. So, um, you know, there are many more, but if you want me to settle on a podium, Alan, let, let me see those three. Brilliant. Wow. And before we come to La Liga currently, I want to focus on take the ball, past the ball, and Barcelona, the, the making of the greatest team in the world. First of all, in terms of the book, I really enjoyed the book. I've actually <laughs> I've read it quite a few times because... I, my fiance got me it um, when we were going on a holiday, and I took it on holiday, and we were there for a week. And I thought maybe get maybe get through half of it, you know, and, and I got through it all in about two days, one chapter to the next to the next. And the insight from each of those players in the book as well was also fascinating. The likes of Victor Valdez and others. I'm putting you on the spot with this question: That Barcelona team, they're making it the greatest team in the world. Are they the best club side you've ever seen? Yeah, it's a loaded um, question because um, what's best, um, I think there's quite a wide definition of that in that, um, you know, nothing, I don't think anything in club terms is ever going to overtake me like watching Aberdeen, you know, particularly in the spell from, from Fergie taking over to leaving. You know, I, I'd seen how many managers I'd seen one, two, three, four. I'd seen four managers before Fergie came. Four managers and, and their their teams is what I mean. So, you know, I, I wasn't one of those who was just beginning to watch at the time Fergie came. And while all the years were great and, and winning the titles were were you know that was you know we hadn't seen that since 1955. But the European season because long before Alec came to Aberdeen, European football meant most to me. And I'm not sure where that comes from because I, I, I don't think many in Aberdeen where I was growing up felt that way. Um, in the years prior to Fergie coming, we'd only seen, friendlies we'd seen, but we'd only seen intermittent bursts of European football. In that, you know, we might have two or most three home ties in a season. Um, against Petrina Dusseldorf or Eintracht Frankfurt or Bohemians or I forget who all else. Um, and but but conquering Europe twice um, in terms of the Cup Winners Cup beaten by Munich and Real Madrid and then winning this European Super Cup against the European champions over two legs. That's you know that to me. I, and I put those guys. If we had time travel, Callum, I put those guys up against. Somebody did recently, somebody on Twitter, somebody I liked, somebody, uh, maybe we were friends. I, anyway, it slips my mind because I didn't, we didn't pair this at all. Somebody on Twitter put that up to me and said, you know, what, what would, how would, I think in Gothenburg, the Dandies would have beaten Pep Barcelona. 120 minutes, you know, the, the rain was bouncing off the puddles. Um, it was a situation, a surface that they would have hated. And Ab that Aberdeen team was really, really talented, characterful, and fit. So, broad, uh, to, to answer 
more fairly and more broadly, because that wasn't a partisan answer, I really mean it. Um, what, I, what I started the book off by trying to say, I still mean, Callum, in that I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not aware of, of a greater outpouring of, I've never seen anything like that from the football community than greeted Barcelona in 2011. Now, I was, um, I was an avid football lover and watcher in 71, 72, 73 when I actually won three. And I passionately disliked Bayern Munich when they won the next three. Really upset me when they won. I didn't like them. I thought, cheated. Well, I thought the referee cheated Leeds in the second of their, I forget who they beat in the first one. That's stupid of me. But Bayern Munich won the first one, then they beat Leeds, and then they beat Sonetti in a hand. And so who's to say that, you know, with a little bit more analysis of those teams, with a bit more time to, to understand their, their, their patterns of play. Oh, it was Atletico Madrid, of course it was. Um, after two games, Atleti were winning until the 91st minute when Schwarzenbeck beat Pepirena's dad from distance. Um, it's an, an AC Milan and, and Juventus, the Juventus side that Fergie's 99 Tibble winners knocked out had been in what, something like, they were aiming for the seventh or eighth consecutive final in Europe. And, they, and, and for about six years, they hadn't been knocked out of Europe. The only times they'd lost in Europe was in the final. That, you know, that era, that, that Juventus mob, that was just off the scale. I think, you know, in the, if you, if I'm okay, and, and also Real Madrid, I saw schools saying the other day, that the only side in his career he's played outside England, that he, he said Barcelona was the greatest side he'd ever played. And he thought maybe there, and I don't know if Paul's a, he's brilliant on the ball, I don't know if he's a scholar of football, but he said maybe maybe that's the best European side ever. Well, maybe it is. But which of us can judge whether the skill in that 1956 until 1962 Real Madrid side, if you could transfer them forward, what would they be like? Mm. Neither of us know, knows the answer to that, Carl. But Scolzi mentioned Madrid, and I was at the game. He 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 picked the one that was the first leg of what would become the four-three at Old Trafford when yes. Ronaldo scored the perfect hat trick and Beckham bent in a free kick, not having been picked originally. And you know, but in the first leg, I took my dad as a treat. Um, he, I flew him over from Scotland, and we crossed from Barcelona to Madrid to go to that game. And, it was a mental experience because it was a good United side as the second leg showed and they got they got it pumped it was only 3-1 but the two teams were playing a different brand of football and the Bernabeu is a beautiful brilliant stadium and when they're crowing over a victory it can be noisy but it's not a place unless they're playing Bayern Munich even sometimes in a classical it's not a place where it's just up and down Back, back, right from start, we will take you. And also, Spanish football doesn't often have away fans, which makes a difference. So, there was a big crowd of United fans there that day. And for whatever reason, Real Madrid wanted Manchester United scalp. And that game, it was just unbelievable. And, and there was a gigantic distance between the two teams that night when, in all honesty, you know, two weeks later, it showed that there, there actually wasn't. So, there are candidates, there are there are legitimate candidates to thwart that argument. But when you get the 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 lion toughness of Puyol and, and PK and Abidal, and you complement complement that with the brains trust in midfield of an elite informed Xavi Iniesta and Busquets, and you get Spain's greatest striker, one of the greatest footballers, David Villa, willing to play wide. And you have a special, maybe the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest right-back ever. Not the greatest defensive right-back ever, but pound for pound, the greatest right-back ever is Danny Alves, in my opinion. I'm old enough to have seen some of the all-time great. When you put them together and you think that they're that the lion tamer is one of the greatest thinkers, one of the greatest motivators that has ever been in Pep Guardiola, I think there's a good argument that that, that, that night might have been certainly was one of the great all-time European Cup finals. But you, I, I bet, I guess, or I hope you watched the two semi-finals. What, what was there between those two sides, Real Madrid and Barcelona? 
paper thin, paper thin. You know, 1-1 one, one at camp now with no Mourinho on the bench and no Pepe. And I think they were missing another. Who else were they missing? They can't, were they missing Ramos too? I can't remember. But it's 1-1 one, one in the second leg. And, and, you know, really, to be honest with you, Madrid merited at least one more goal out of that game, at least. So when Eric Abidal said in the film, uh, Calum, that, no, pardon me, when Mascherano said in the film, no disrespect to Manchester United. Once we'd beaten Real Madrid, we thought we'd beaten the best side in the tournament bar us. So, how do you want to look at 2011 and that final as, as marking them down as the best ever? I don't know. And if you look at the you know winning in close proximity 2009-2011, well, you know, Madrid won three in the trot. Does that mean that that, that era was the greatest? But the best 11 out of those three finals were they the best from Kiev back to Cardiff back to Milan? I don't know how to answer your question, but I think that there's a broad consensus amongst football that the most beautiful final, the most beautiful team that's ever contested the Champions League of the European Cup might be that bit for Barcelona one, yeah. Oh, well, I think when it comes to that 2011 final, you talked about the most beautiful team in performance. I have never, I've never seen anything like it um, in the sense that the way they kept the ball, the confidence they had on the ball. And I recently interviewed Clive Childsley, and obviously he was commentating in the UK in the game. And he said, Wayne Rooney scored for Man United. And Barcelona just looked as if, well, what happened there? What happened there? Nothing. Right, let's just go back to playing. That nothing See, faced them. That, that's, that's perception. That's perception. And it's a perception that I think I, I might have come to too. I'm not being at all critical, but you know, the players who were on the pitch told me, yeah, we were a bit nervous. You know, at 1-1, yes, we noticed that we weren't imposing a goal difference on them. I don't think they ever thought they were going to lose. I think they thought that they had the, the wherewithal. They, you know, they, I think they thought that Guardiola had told them this is what the midfield will be like and you'll romp it because of that. And I think he was proven correct. And I think that they possibly felt, yeah, we're still going to win this. But they... Three of them that played on that night said, yeah, it induces nerves. Messi was one of them. When you should be ahead, you should have tucked it away and it's still 1-1. So I just think we need to be, you know, if we learn anything from our careers, I think we need to reintroduce those things into the debate. Definitely, Barcelona with a better team by a long way. Definitely when you get Alex Ferguson saying no team's given us a what do you say? No, no team, no team's given us a beating like that. I think that was the the phrase. Uh, uh, they, they clearly Barcelona had many, many more clear-cut goal chances, so the margin might have been bigger. And every Manchester United fan I know says, you know, we were handed a lesson. Fair enough, fair enough. But you know, on the night, if, if it teaches you, if, if you don't impose your superiority the goals, and also. You mentioned it, but I, I think it's worth saying. I thought United's goal was a thing of beauty. I'm not a United fan. I don't have a, I don't have a dog in the fight in England. When I was a kid, I used to like Coventry because of Tommy Hutchison and Willie Carr, Leeds because of Eddie Gray, um, and Bremner and Harvey and Joe Jordan and Frank Gray and Peter Lorimer. You know, as a kid, the the, the, the Scottish flag mattered much more to me. But I thought that Rooney goal was just sublime. I thought it was a absolutely when it when it builds and I think they rob a they rob a throw in and the speed with which they build, the, the connection play and then the the last two touches in the box um which set Rooney free to, to smash past Valdez. That was sublime football. Really good football. And what it makes me think is that if United were better equipped in midfield that night, maybe we'd have seen a tighter result and a tighter battle. It's a very interesting, very interesting point. And on La Liga now, um, to bring it up to, to the current state, obviously it's coming back shortly. As we know, it's an unprecedented situation we're in. Um, the title race is... Well poised in the sense that there's there's a few points between the top two in Madrid and Barcelona. How do you see it progressing from here on out? I don't know, Callum, truthfully, because, you know, as much as I've seen 
as old as I am, um, the situation in match which is completely unprecedented. And I think new criteria come into play in trying to answer you honestly. And, I, and over the coming 10 days, I'm going to be asked to say that on TV and write it. I don't know yet what I'm going to say because you know, there's not, we don't have a massive amount of evidence to base it upon. You know, I've watched a lot of the German football um, and, and one of the things you gather is, so, so when you are set, when, if you'd asked me that question in normal times, let's say it was pre-season summer or coming back after an established winter break, I'd have had a lot more fodder, a lot more information to give you a proper answer. But what the Bundesliga has told us is that it's, it's not just the teams that have the best players automatically. And it's not just the um, teams that are um, most injury-free to begin with. And I think it's not, to say it carefully, not automatically the teams that are the fittest that will impose themselves. It's the teams that are competitively sharpest. So how do we judge that when we're no longer allowed into training? Um, I think that teams that have played the training matches, the fusion, because the, the ability in Spain to, to unless, they, unless, unless clubs cheated and broke the rules, which probably for the health of their own players, they didn't. It was only last Monday, you know, we're taught, I don't know when you put this out, but we're talking on whatever this is, the 4th of June. So it was last Monday that in theory they were able to train fully and do practice matches. And in my opinion, by the 11th when the first, when the Civil Derby kicked us off, and by the weekend after that Thursday night match, the teams that have managed to pack in the most practice games are the ones that will initially win and win clearly because there will be a lot of players um, out there who narrowed the gap between them and superstars with competitive energy. That's the biggest... You know, apart from rule changes, that's the biggest change in my lifetime in, in competitive football. That we're now able to, like in Steve Austin, six million dollar man, fine tune, make players bionic to the most extraordinary fitness regimes, dietary regimes, stretching, general physical preparation and rehabilitation. That means that without resorting to what in my youth was the the leveler, which was kicking. Now, if you take a good example is Getafe, by far they're not the only example. And good examples for in Barcelona's case would be Roma and Paris Saint-Germain and Liverpool. But across the board, from all the leading teams in Spain, Getafe is a very good example because you know most of the starting eleven for Bordalas's team can play, but they 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 perform as if they were linked robotically. They perform as if they're all working off one giant collective brain split 11 ways. Now, you need enormous competitive energy to be able to do that. And I don't yet see how that can function probably in the first two or three weeks back. It's not even week, two or three rounds back. So I think that um, whichever team can most quickly um, show competitive aggression and not be affected by the lack of crowds, they'll be the ones that stand out. And whether that's Real Madrid or Barcelona, I, I don't quite know. But little clues that might help you get the answer you are looking for. One, as we speak, there's a slight doubt about um, Messi being ready for the first game. Um, he pulled out, strained the muscle in training. Next, Barcelona were clearly not only leggy, but but psychologically a little bit um, low on the battery meter by the time football uh, curtailed itself. They're a point ahead, um, but I'm I'm pretty convinced that if Real Madrid had more goals in their squad, they would be champions. So what I'm saying is, has potentially has the break done Barcelona are good? <laughs> have they cleared Have they cleared the cobwebs out of their minds? Have they uh, come back physically ready for this challenge? Because if so, that gives them a gigantic opportunity to win the title. There's no more Clásicos. 
if it goes head-to-head, Real Madrid automatically win that head-to-head. They drew one and won one. So, in my opinion at the moment, I think there is a slight advantage to Real Madrid. Am I sitting here telling you I'm, I'm, I'm sure I know which one of them wins the title? Frankly, Callum, no. No, I'm not. <laughs> Give me a couple of weeks and I'll be much surer. In terms of the last major question I've got for you, Graham, we're used to hearing you on on UK television. I know the, the broadcasting situation has changed, but where can we hear you and where can we watch Spanish football in the UK? Well, I wouldn't go, yeah, I'd, I'd rather you turn that around. I wouldn't bother going looking for me. Um, but Spanish football um, is it has a home in Premier Television. And I would contract Premier, I would you know make a contract with them because Premier, um, put out good product um, you can watch a pretty full gamut of um, European football on there um, they're going to be our partners for a couple of seasons to come temporarily in June I think what's really important is that if you're a Sky UK customer, not, not, not even necessarily Sky Sports customer during June, once the restart comes on the 11th during June you can watch Spanish football free um, if you're a Sky UK customer, if you go to either your feed, where this podcast is, or you go to my Twitter feed, which is at Bumper Graham, I'll repost the details there. Um, effectively, you go to Sky UK and you look for the free offer whereby you can activate Premier Television free during June. And therefore, given that there's going to be a game every single day from the 11th of June onwards, you can watch that chunk of La Liga for free. Um, and I'd encourage people to do it because very soon Spain is going to be out of lockdown altogether and already the government is saying all right when different regions of Spain are in phase three or three of restrictions we, we can't let fans in because that would be unfair to the clubs that aren't allowed to have fans in but the government is already talking that if the whole country comes out of this what's called an estado de alarma state of alarm um, here then they will look to reintroduce fans gradually and gradually touching wood uh, with no um, no deleterious effect on the health of those involved in football because they're back playing again, as far as COVID is concerned, if there are no deleterious effects. then increasingly quickly, we'll be moving to normality uh, within uh, La Liga. And by the way, America, that is the word normality, no normalcy. I thought I'd just finish with the same type of rants if I can, Callum. Consistent, consistency being what it is. So people, tune in. Spanish football's beautiful. It absolutely is. And Graham, I just want to thank you again for your time. And I would love to speak to you again in the future and we can focus on all things dandies as well. Wow, well, you see, that's quite crafty of you because in all honesty, knowing what you do, I'm, I'm hardly going to say no now, am I? <laughs> Learn from the best, Graham. <laughs> tell, tell your partner well done for buying the book and thanks for phoning me up thank you very much so we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open they'll be filled with song they'll be filled with song we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our 